Welcome to the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. Today, we are going to talk about ketones. We're going to talk about back pain. We're going to talk about fat loss, creatine, and also some hot takes. We've got Ivy with us, Ivy Audrain. We've got our CEO, Nate Pearson. It's going to be a great one. Let's just roll into it. Grant says, I used to be a member of Trainer Road a long time ago, and I felt it brought me success. Since then, I took a break from triathlon, and then two years ago, I made a comeback. As a sports science lecturer, ooh, that means that like, you know, Grant's like, uh, I feel like Grant, you're speaking down to me over here. So yeah, um, you probably know more about this stuff than I do. Yeah, well, you better uh, get our as facts a, straight. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> as a sports science lecturer, I'm quite lucky to be on the pulse with recent trends in nutrition. My question relates to exogenous ketones, but not the super expensive ones that come in shop bottles like Delta G. I've found a few powders that are of a more reasonable price around 50 euros. And yeah, you can find powders online. Um, if you go on Amazon, you look for ketone powders, you can find uh, ketone monoesters in powder form uh, that you can mix into things. I have not tried them, so I don't know what the taste is like. I don't know if it's any better, um, but just the same. You can't find them and it's cheaper. Uh, my question is linked to timing though. I quite like the science behind the benefits of ketones. So should I consume the ketone supplement during the winter period or is it something that is worth saving until spring, summer? Also, what are your views on pre and post consumption and benefit to training? I must say, I'm glad to be getting back to Trainer Road, and it's good to see that the podcast is even better since I left. I really mm-hmm. appreciate all the time you guys put into making this one and the best training podcast out there. Thanks, Thanks Grant. Yeah, it's awesome, right? Can we recap ketones really quick? I went through the research as it stands right now, the most recent research I could find, studies from 2023 and 2022 um, for updates on it. Because, Nate, you do you still yeah. take them? No, I've, I've spent thousands of dollars on ketones though. So yeah. I have my own. They're expensive. Like they were, <laughs> was causing a shortage. It was every workout I was doing ketones uh, for a while, but you, you say your stuff and I'll say my experience. Well, you felt, did you feel a benefit Nate from it? Mm, I think I did on really long sweet spot stuff, uh, okay. like two hour sweet spot workouts, but it's hard to tell. Cause I was, I was, I did so many things at once, like prepping for Cape Epic, so many carbs and I just like I'd stack caffeine on it, and it could, what con, mm. confounding variables were very high in my anecdotal experience. One thing it did do though is that I had the liquid ketone esters that taste like nail polish, heartburn, oh, my. <laughs> incredible. Like heartburn uh, would last with me, I think for months afterwards. I started taking like Alka Seltzer and stuff to try to combat Whoa. it from and the ketones. You think? Yeah, I, it, for oh. sure from the ketones. It got to the point where I drink water, and that would give me heartburn. So Yikes. it was Whoa. it was bad. I stopped that and you know, it went away, but that was, watch out for that. That's a whole other thing is you can't, if you can't eat during a race <laughs> or can't eat at the other times, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the benefits of, of having them, food. and I don't even know if they're really supposed to help a lot with sweet spot, but I, you know, if it does shift that, uh, ratio to more fat burning during it, um, mm-hmm. maybe that would help. And I know we have a, we did a whole podcast on this too, on the, the science mm-hmm. of getting faster, which will be interesting. I'm sure you'll cover that. And anyways, mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil. Here. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Ivy, what were you going to say? Oh, Sorry. I was just going to ask, Nate, do you think you're sensitive to uh, like placebo? How sensitive do you think you are to it? I don't know. I think I'm actually the opposite where I'm, I don't think that they work. Uh, <laughs> a lot of things. I didn't get any benefit from beetroot juice. Um, rubbing lotion on my legs didn't help me. Uh, <laughs> bike carb lotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clean bike though does work. That, yeah. <laughs> that makes you climb yeah, yeah. faster. <laughs> lotion on my uh, legs yeah. always helps. Not the bicarb stuff. It just makes my legs look good. I mean, my legs look good. I feel good. And I go good. I'm fully on board the placebo train. You know? but, I mean, if the placebo <laughs> works, like if I put out 10 extra watts and it's placebo, then I will pay for that placebo. 
Yeah. I don't sure think I am, but I could be, you know, who, who's self-aware enough to really know if a placebo really impacts them because then it wouldn't mm -hmm. be a placebo. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, as Nate mentioned, there's a podcast that you all should check out and we're going to link below. It's from the Science of Getting Faster podcast and it's with Dr. Kyle Poffet. And that podcast looked into ketones and bicarbonate and a unique combination that perhaps when you combine the both of them, you actually do get some benefits um, that are unique. <laughs> to Nate's point, confounding variables, maybe they are compounding variables instead of confounding at times. So I do want to go through the basic just goals of ketones, like the, the whole premise here. It's an alternate fuel source for your body to rely upon. Ketones are in and of themselves, and we create these within our body. Uh, theoretically, if we have that alternative fuel source, it could enable higher performance or perhaps more sustainable performance. The key thing is that the theory is that it could help us spare glycogen. So in other words, we're using another fuel source instead of using glycogen. And when we use glycogen, that creates lactate, lactate causes a chain of events that could then impair performance or at least shorten your ability to perform at the exact same level. So that's the whole reason behind this and why people want to take them. You can enter ketosis through a ketogenic diet. The results vary widely in terms of different people's ability to enter ketosis or stay in ketosis. And it seems like it's highly individual. So then there's exogenous ketones or ketones you can drink in most cases, or these powders that you can mix in. It's kind of like brute forcing ketosis and you can push it in there. Your body's in getting those ketones. It has those as fuel and that's what it could use. There's two the, different the, things. Oh, Nate, oh I want to say too, like the, the benefit of that theoretically is supposed to be that you can train with carbs. It have all the benefits of your high intensity workouts, but then you can get into ketosis at certain times, kind of just by taking a magic elixir and then have the benefits of that, of burning more fat or going longer or something, you know, like that. And we had another podcast too with Dr. Podigar. They had a test where they would have athletes use it for like what, two or three hours, I think, um, as yeah. endurance. And then when it was worn off, like, could they finish at more Watts at the end of the race thinking that like, oh, these grand tour riders, they're going to use it for like three or four hours and at the end, not use it and then have all that glycogen stored. Um, are you going to yeah. cover that or should we spoil it right now? Uh, we can spoil it right now. Go ahead. It yeah. didn't work. No, yeah, it didn't, didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. And this kind of gets at the, the, the meat of Grant's question. Grant, there's not research right now on periodized utilization of ketones that I've been able to find, um, which would be really interesting to see that, uh, to see if you can do that. From what I have seen, at least from some research and also just anecdotally from different people citing this is that, uh, using exogenous ketones or taking in ketones doesn't mean that you're suddenly ketogenic and will be in that state afterward. Like it's not like it shifts your body toward maintaining a state of ketosis, but rather it introduces ketones. You can use those ketones and that's what it is, but it doesn't like shift you into a state of ketosis in any way that is sustainable beyond once you've used those ketones. In terms of your question, I don't have a scientific answer yet in terms of when you should use it in your training phase. And when you should use it, whether it's even like before or after exercise, we'll get into that in a little bit. There's a bit more science on that. But in terms of periodization, there isn't a whole lot. However, right now, the way it's being used, the way it's being used is in performance. Like athletes are using it, but not all athletes across the board. And we'll get to that in a second. But some athletes swear by using it intra-race or intra-workout. And typically, as they get closer to their goal event, that's like the time when they want to use it. For example, during the Tour de France, there is somebody that has been mentioned many times on the podcast who is serving as an advisor to uh, pro t world tour teams who provided some inside information on this. And when they provided this inside information on this, they said that not all athletes use it and they typically spare it for like the main goal stage. That day, that rider wants to win that stage and that's what they're going out and that's what they're using it for. But here's the tricky thing. So I just want to cover the basics of like the most recent research. 
Uh, Wait, what are you talking about? Can we? Right. Yeah, yeah. Is it, so, it, who? Yeah, who? I can't, yeah, I don't want to say just because they, they, they didn't want to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. He who must they not meet him. They said they don't want to be revealed, so they just want to show it. that. Because then you can oh, tie yeah, that into that. the athlete. And then if you tie it into the athlete, then perhaps that's divulging information and everything else. Got so anyways. Forum, figure it out. Yeah, there we go. Don't, yeah. <laughs> don't <touch> joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyways, I want to cover the recent research. So there was an interesting paper. And first of all, the research, just spoiler alert, it's on... Uh, like in mass, it's not positive for ketones. It's showing that there isn't any sort of potential performance embed or performance benefit for endurance athletes when you look beyond very, very small studies. Very small studies with one, two, three subjects, something like that. You might see, yes, that indeed it does improve performance, but if you have anything larger than that, it's not the case. Um, and we'll get into a meta-analysis in a bit on a systematic review. But in 2023, McCarthy and colleagues, they had a study called Acute Ketone Monoester Supplementation Impairs 20-Minute Time Trial Performance in Trained Cyclists. They had 23 healthy adults, VO2 max average of around 62, so they were fit folks. They were all above 50 in terms of VO2 max, and their age was in between 18 and 60. And I really, really wish that they would have tied in some sort of correlation between age, but you couldn't see the results per individual age subject. Um, that would have been really cool to see, but it wasn't in there. So maybe that's future research that could be done. That would be cool. Um, but all these athletes have been training chronically more than five hours per week recently coming into this. Uh, it was a randomized crossover triple blinded trial. So that's a really good structure that they put in place. Ketone versus placebo is what they drank. And then they did a 20 minute TT. They measured RPE, power and heart rate. And RPE, there was zero difference between ketone versus placebo and heart rate ketone people, the people that took ketones had two beats per minute lower, but also their power was six Watts lower, 2.3% lower. And this actually represents the majority of the research that we're seeing now, when it's a well-structured study that involves more than just a few athletes, it shows actually a slight performance decrement with ketones on average for most athletes that it doesn't help with endurance performance, strangely. And this is backed up in 2022 Brooks and colleagues, they did a meta-analysis and it was in a systematic review. It's called Acute Ingestion of Ketone Monoesters and Precursors Do Not Enhance Endurance Exercise Performance a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And really quick, um, monoesters and then precursors, those two things. So ketone monoesters or ketones, you drink them, they go into your body, your liver processes them, boom, you've got the fuel and you're all good. Precursors, you take them and they're basically the ingredients for your body to create ketones. You take those in and it creates it. It takes longer for the ketones to be created and then to be utilized for your body. Um, but in this case, the systematic review looked at both. They whittled everything down and they were only able to have eight studies that had solid enough, or I should say match the criteria that they had with sample size and with proper controls and everything else. But out of these eight studies, uh, they had 80 participants, 77 men and three women. So very gender lopsided, also worth keeping in mind. Is a, they did human randomized crossover or parallel controlled trials. They focused on exercise performance. They had to use ketone monoesters or precursors, and they had to take it pre-workout or intra-workout ingestion. And the studies using animal models, ketogenic diets, ketone diesters, and ketone salts were excluded. The results, all studies reported an increase in blood ketone levels. So yes, that part is working, but no significant difference between control and ketone groups across all studies. Okay. So like scientific definition of your mileage may vary, but not likely to improve. I would say though, in the, uh, in the first one, the 20 minute time trial, they're testing the wrong thing because I, I don't take ketones to increase my 20 minute TT power. I take it to go longer, um, and have like, to like, you know, 
not have glycogen, like at Leadville, right? Do not have glycogen mm-hmm. issues really far in the race, which is super. I mean, I'm I'm usually skeptical on products and stuff, but uh, <laughs> it's really hard to test that, right? To go like to the point of losing. That's what I think Ivy might be getting to that point too. To get to that point of uh, glycogen going away, and sounds like they need a muscle biopsy. No, just kidding. Um, actually, that probably would. I mean, seriously, that, that might help. before that and after, right? A certain wattage. I wonder if you could do that. No, that, that you can't measure glycogen. That's just muscle fiber types. I don't know what I'm thinking about. Uh, unless you can, I don't know. But anyways, I would think people on the ketosis diets, um, I can't think of the word right now, but they have the same experience where your ketogenic diets, where your heart rate's lower, but actually the power output is lower. And that's why it's normally not advised for, you know, uh, dynamic cycling because you're not gonna be able to put out as much power. If you're doing like a 20 hour race or something, maybe so. But this question, I wonder if like during some base phase or like lower intensity training, you know, you could go longer and get some more aerobic improvements and then later on stop and switch to the more high carb, you know, Hmm. stuff or even during the week, right? Sorry, Ivy, go ahead. I think we maybe didn't say what the point of taking ketones should be for athletes, which is to help an athlete consume carbohydrates that last longer during an activity without having to refuel. So as Nate said, like having to do with glycogen and how much you need to refuel. So in that sense, well, here's the deal. Here's the deal though. That's like the idea, but then you have pro athletes, uh, very famously, this has been like referenced. They take their ketone bottle when they're going up the last climb on Alp Duez in the tour. Mm-hmm. And that's like the, so we have this anecdotal evidence of like these athletes that are using this in a way that doesn't drive with how we would anticipate it being used in terms of glycogen sparing to allow prolonged performance at a specific endurance level that isn't, or a specific level that isn't high. Pro teams used to pump their tires up to like 200 PSI too. Uh, (laughs) Just because they do it doesn't Uh mean that it's good. Uh, And I wonder, every time I think of pro teams and there's something public about what they do and it's very special and they say, this is the thing. Mm -hmm. I always like, I would personally, sorry, I would lie. If I was like the head of a coach, I'd be like, say you're doing this, like the opposite of whatever you should be doing and tell the world sure. that this is why we won. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't know why. Cause they're so like want to win. Right. Why would tell they tell them we secret? only eat lettuce during the tour? Yeah. <laughs> tell them, tell them like Chris Froome's like, I just have this no carb day in the middle of the core. <laughs> that's how I, cause he showed a picture of himself eating like avocado and egg whites. And that's not what they eat every day, but that's what I would do if I was, uh, if you're to mess with the other team, right? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's the interesting thing to your point, Ivy, in terms of what it would be used for and back to the periodization question. This is what the research would be able to figure out for us is if you are indeed sparing glycogen through using ketone supplementation during a ride, is that actually shifting fat substrate utilization if you are not using ketones in subsequent rides? Mm. Like, is it truly temporary? Kind of like, you know, caffeine or anything else. Is it something that truly has its effect right then? Or does it shift something beyond that? And that would be the really interesting thing that would be really cool to see researched, right? Well, Um, we know based upon Nate's heartburn that it certainly doesn't (laughs) just go away when you stop using (laughs) for Nate. (laughs) I tried some ketones again three months ago. Um, and they were the HVMN ones. They, uh, they do not sponsor us in any way. It's just the ones that I'd tried before. And I tried them again. They do not taste as bad as they used to taste at all. Um, the flavor is different. I think they're called ketone IQ now is like the brand they go under, but it's essentially the same brand because last time it really did just taste like rubbing alcohol. Um, and for an N equals one experience, once again, N equals one, I took these on four different rides and in every situation on all four, after I took them. 
it felt like somebody shut off glycolysis in my body. <laughs> like I felt 100% bonked after taking these things, you know, give myself 15, 20, 30 minutes into a steady like endurance day when I would be doing three or four hour rides, something like that. And I felt like no matter how many carbs I took in, no matter what I did after that, just wasn't working anymore. Hmm. And when I took it recently and three months ago, same exact experience, which I thought was um, uh, reassuring at least because I feel kind of crazy saying that because most people that I speak to say, oh, I feel like it's like jet fuel and it works really well. But once again, placebo is a really powerful thing. And I'm, I'm very skeptical of all these things. And I think that that flies in the face of the placebo effect many times. They say me, that it, so. that it, they say that it's jet fuel because it is, it tastes like jet fuel. And so they think, <laughs> they think yeah. in their mind I've that been, it's, jet fuel. <laughs> I think I have like 40 in my office that, uh, if you want to test it again, just you, I don't <laughs> they expire. expired. Does rubbing alcohol expire? Do expire? I don't, I don't think so. It's good for <laughs> centuries. You know, this is what I would, this would be a very hard study to do, but what I, if I, how I would use it just based on how they say it should work is on my trainer road endurance days, I would take it and maybe that would spare some glycogen for the, uh, hard days that are, you know, maybe after endurance day or a couple days for, so I can hit those harder days harder, but I can still get the aerobic benefit and utilize fat more on those endurance days and then not take it on the other days. I wonder if anyone, you know, if anyone's tried that and has anecdote, which you know, the plural of anecdote is not data. Um, please put that in the YouTube comments or in the forum. It'd just be interesting. There's so many like variables that would be, you know, that'd be really hard to figure out performance and how hard the workouts is. And yeah, even, that would be really hard to do. Even when doing what you suggested on endurance days, you'd have to be so calculated and controlling, uh, like making sure every endurance day is the same while you do that, you know, same mm -hmm. amount of calories for breakfast, same timing before your ride, same like sleep and lead up into that <laughs> endurance day like very like a lot of controlled variables to see you know to really <laughs> then afterwards yeah exactly yeah. And afterwards too how many carbs are you eating between that and the next hard workout and then how hard is that hard workout for you because all you know all out too is even hard based on motivation it's it'd be really hard to do yeah this reference is the last podcast episode we just published with Sarah and I, and I was talking about the study at the end where, um, basically like, you know, our researchers were asking out, um, they were just pleading Rosenblatt in particular was just saying, if you're going to do exercise intervention studies like this, like you have to have big sample sizes and doing that is very difficult. Yes. To control all those things, but you have to, because it's also individually variable grant mm -hmm. getting directly to your question. If it was me and assuming that ketones didn't have this like seemingly detrimental effect on, on me that they do assuming that they didn't, I would be using ketones very early on. Um, and I would try to be using those in the base phase in particular to be able to shift substrate utilization, assuming that that works. I don't know if it does work, but that would be my intention in terms of using them. Um, and, and simply, it, you'd have to view it in the appropriate context, though, because once you get into harder workouts and everything else, there's like this obsession with like utilizing, it was sparing glycogen and using fat. But there's also being able to rip through a ton of glucose really quickly is very beneficial. And that is something that gets trained later on as you get closer to your specialty phase and everything else. So if you found yourself in a situation where you were using ketones and you're sparing glycogen and you're doing that and you push that too long, and once again, we're operating in a theoretical world because I don't see any scientific studies yet. And please, if you find them, put them down below because I may have missed them, but I wouldn't want that to fly in the face of my ability to just become a fire hose of glycogen that could just drain super fast, right? The way I think about it, and it, it's really hit me is that the, in cycling, unless it's triathlon, 
the, the times that people win races are usually the person who can burn the most glycogen the fastest. Right. Efficiency is a part of that equation too. But, you know, it's these really small, you know, under 10 minute usually places that like really cause the race to happen. And of course you'd say, well, um, like that study that Pochaclar did, let's see if we could store all that glycogen. But it sounds like they maybe stored more, but then they weren't able to burn it as fast and their fire couldn't be as, uh, as fast burning. So that's why uh, two of the people talk about the ketogenic diet for a dynamic sport like cycling. You don't want to inhibit that ability to burn as much as you can. And, you know, if you're going really long, like I said, ultra distance runner, uh, ultra distance cycling, uh, even I think in triathlon, it was, it was at Ironman distance, even for age groupers, it's like when you get up to the 16, 17 hour, it's could go either way, but shorter than that, it's better to be, um, not ketogenic mm -hmm. as far as the research that I understand is. And I, um, I don't have anything personally against, I mean, I love carbs, but I don't have anything against the ketogenic diet. I know it's good for like epilepsy, I think, believe that's the there's, way that it was developed. Yeah. And the, yeah. There's really a lot of different too. Yeah. ties into it. That, mm hmm and that's the interesting thing, Nate. Like just this year at Ironman World Championships, the pace that these age groupers are holding, and I know it's World Championships, so I know it's like we're dealing with the, the 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 cream of the crop. But still, oh my gosh, it is so they're so fast. Like what the, the where they're operating is like eighty percent FTP. Like <laughs> you know they're seventy five to eighty percent FTP, and some of them I don't know with weird fractional utilization might even be higher, and it might be sustainable for them, but. It's really impressive to see how high intensity even Ironman uh, sort of stuff is. So, but yeah, I could see that now. Ketones as recovery is another thing where I'm seeing them marketed mm. big time. Recovery studies are really tough. Like kind of like what you talked about, Nate. What are you doing before? What are you doing after? Individual variability is absolutely at play, and everything else. And I couldn't find anything conclusive that shows that, like you know, that even looked into that and found that ketones are beneficial. It's always before or during the workout is where I've seen it taken. Mm -hmm. Um, and this honestly kind of reminds me of the sodium bicarbonate pathway, like in terms of the, the development, not, not path scientific pathway in the body, but the developmental and narrative pathway where it was like, you put this on your skin, it'll help you process and buffer lactate. So you can do a lot of hard efforts. And then it was like, well, this will help you go longer on hard days. And then it was like, well, this will help you recover. And it's, it, the thing is, and I'm not saying that sodium bicarbonate doesn't work for any of that stuff. It likely does. Whether it's absorbed through the skin or not is another issue entirely. And check out the YouTube video I'll put down below where I went deep into sodium bicarbonate and its effects on us. But these with studies, it's hard to prove this stuff. Mm -hmm. It gets really difficult to prove it all the time because we're really complex, you know? Right. And, and for someone like Grant, who, you know, is price conscious about stuff like this, if, you know, they're talking about uh, expensive ones, I found a less expensive one, you know, if, if we don't have concrete proof that this is effective and will help your performance, don't you think that Grant's money would be better allocated for something like a good oh, massage yeah. from a PT or <laughs> a trainer yeah. subscription, you know, things that, you know, we know will measurably help your performance or well-being that we we know to be true versus something we're not really sure of you know a little little tr plugs here 90 minute massage is a year of trainer road like also you talk yeah. about small uh sample sizes in the next podcast uh i'm just going to commit myself right now so i actually do it do a little product yes. update with some behind the scenes stuff but Ooh. you talk about small sample size our ml team when we look at stuff 
uh, I've been working with them more lately. And there's things that are like, okay, we have 600,000 cases of this with all of this data <laughs> around it. And now what we do is we can pull out um, performance things from that and tease out the metrics because there's so many confounding variables of different things that can happen. How frequent you ride, your history of riding, your age, your uh, your sex, your um, your other sports you're doing, your running. Like There's so many things. And your heart rate. And what what's really cool, you were talking about red light, green light, that is going to come out pretty soon here, just going to be part of adaptive training. And right now at the beginning, it's like an algorithm approach about how much training you've been doing. But there is a secondary approach being done. I just saw it, which is all machine learning based that predicts your performance on a day. And it is, it's nuts. It is so cool. Like the ML team, they were kind of upset because they got pretty close to it, but they weren't like perfectly predicting performance, but they got the outlier cases like like 95% of the time. So therefore, if the ride is, we predict it's going to be too easy for you, it really was too easy. And if we think that it's going to crush you based on something you've done recently or been like really hard when it shouldn't be really hard, we got that like almost perfect, really close to performance. We're putting a couple more things in it to be more accurate, but I want to get that out and replace this other part that's not even out yet as soon as possible because it is. <laughs> yeah. it, um, I don't know, you've, you've done it where you do too much and then uh, mm-hmm. the next day, you know, gets you. That's what I really want to put in and have that upgraded version. And again, it'll just look like part of adaptive training. Your adaption will just come in and it will change. But it's super exciting to be able to have, but we have like 200 million plus activities in our database so that that allows us to do these really big machine learning analyses of people where we don't have exact control of how many carbs and all that stuff to eat. But if you look at a huge population of hundreds of thousands or millions, you get to see trends. And what machine learning does is is, is advanced statistics. So it says, if people have these sorts of things, it's more likely that they'll have this outcome. And then it will have a percentage, well, depends on what kind of technique you're using, but like of how uh, might categorize things and saying these people are usually this thing. And then we can then show that in the app. Of course, it's never like 100% that we will say, uh, hey, this workout's going to be too easy. So I'm going to give you a harder one and we'll complete. There's t- that's impossible, but we could b- greatly improve what we have today. And I think what anyone has... Um, human coach or not coach about how well you're going to be doing to proactively super- instead of like reactively be like, whoops, that was too hard. Or like, Oh yeah, let's change this. Like, like mm, I have an idea of what this is going to be like and how it can be better. Like not, mm-hmm. I can't makes, think of another yeah. training model or even a coach that would be able to do that. Or you can get a 90 minute massage. I don't know, whatever. And we make, <laughs> we, <laughs> we make, we make adjustments already, but not like uh, these large sweeping ones that might be because yeah. of something else happening previously in the week of a series of data, like a series of data points that come in um, that are too complex for us humans to understand. That is the really cool part. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. Uh, tune in for next week's podcast. It's going to be great stuff. Grant, welcome also, back to, to Trainer Road. <laughs> yes. And go to trainerroad.com if you're listening to this now. Uh, some features will likely already be out. Um, some other features that Nate didn't even talk about. So Ooh, big one. We'll it should be. So if you're listening one. to this podcast... Well, I don't should know what you should do. It should be better be out. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it's out today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay, let's go into Jacob's question before we reveal anything else. Uh, Jacob says, I just completed the little sugar. Actually, hold on. Before we do this, we need everybody that has tried ketones. Let us know how they how you performed. Nate kind of asked for that, but I just want to re- hit that home. Let us know if they helped. And if you haven't tried ketones, if you want to try them at that cost, that sort of thing. Man, like... um regular ketone supplementation is probably cheaper to hire a personal assistant to be able to handle all the scheduling that would allow you to train consistently with trainer road. Like, you know, it's like, it's, it's expensive stuff. So, 
Uh, Jacob says, I just completed the Little Sugar 100 MTB race and it hurt. I missed that by like four days. I was in Bentonville for a USAC coaching clinic and I missed that one. I want to go and do that race. That looks like an absolute blast. Uh, super fun. And Bentonville is really, really, really cool. If anyone hasn't been there and you're a mountain biker, my gosh, you've it's Disneyland. So, uh, it's surreal. So Truman show, uh, but it wasn't my legs. I have to, they say that the reason that the race hurt wasn't their legs. I have to thank trainer roads, uh, marathon XC program for having me prepared for the effort and being able to finish the time of seven hours and 12 minutes. It's impressive. That's solid. 60 miles of like 67 miles of constant on like the terrain there is never straight. It's left or right at all times and up or down at all times. It's like, uh, you never get a chance to rest. And there's so many spots, like little spots where you can flat if you're not really sharp in terms of where you're handling your bike because the rocks are really sharp there. So uh, super impressive job. Way to go, 712. Um, so I got a puncture and I wasted too much time at the aid station, but the big thing was my back and hands were destroyed during and after the race. My back started hurting at about mile 25 and the hands were toast after the race or after mile 50. Before the race, I set my bike suspension pressures about five PSI higher front and back because I thought all the extra gear I was carrying needed to, I needed to counter for that with that extra adjustment in PSI. I thought about this and regretted doing it for about five hours during the race as the pain set in. Is there any bike setup tips for marathon rides, like maybe lowering suspension PSI or slowing rebound to help with hand and back fatigue? I ride an Epic Evo, so I have a little extra travel to work with. Are there any hand and back strengthening exercises <laughs> you would all recommend? Or is it just a normal do bigger rise and your body will get used to it? And lastly, doing high-speed jump trails of the massive breaking bumps after 55 miles of riding brought tears to my eyes and curse words from my mouth. Uh, that wasn't a very nice course designer. Uh, okay. Oh, man. Uh, suspension part, first of all, if I can just say <laughs> five PSI is a lot. If you change, I know five PSI might not be a lot in tires, but you change that in suspension. It's huge because you're dealing with like a really small space in your suspension. You aren't filling up your whole fork leg with air. There's a tiny little reservoir inside your fork. That is the air spring, right? And it's a small little space. And when you add in five PSI in a small space like that, it has profound impacts shock. It's even smaller. So five PSI, you probably went from being smooth over all those bumps to having like a perfectly detailed topographical map of every bump you went over for that whole race and your back is where that all registered, which <laughs> probably sucked. So, um, I, my suspension does not fluctuate more than one to two PSI all year, depending on hard hitting trails. If it's a really hard, like trail with big hits, I'll go up one or two PSI. If it's a trail where it's like a bunch of small chundery rock that I'm constantly dealing with small bumps, but nothing like a huge hit, I might drop one PSI. But that's like the max that I do. So five PSI does seem extreme, at least on the bike setup side. Mm -hmm. and, and then on bike setup, run suspension tokens. This is the sort of thing, <clears throat> if you're in a long race, add one more volume spacer or token, however you want to say it, into your suspension in the front and rear. And what that's going to do is that's going to make the top part of your travel extra plush. And then it's going to make it so you still don't bottom out. So that can be a really helpful thing uh, to take the edge off the bumps on those sort of things on, on big days like that. So that's what I would say there. If anything, drop tire pressure, not suspension pressure. Um, so yeah, that, that token, why would, mm -hmm. would the reason you not want to always run that? Cause it would impact pedaling efficiency. Yeah. There's two different things. Like number one, it might make it so that you sag too low all the time. So then your bike is either in a weird position, but then also it makes it so that 
bikes are now designed really well so that in a certain position of the travel, the bike will pedal really efficiently. But if you get lower than that, it will lose its efficiency and start to kind of bob around. And every time you put energy into your pedals, it's going to just suck it up with suspension movement. So that's kind of why you wouldn't want to do that. The other reason too, is sometimes you want a bike to be a bit more sprightly. And for most cross country Olympic races here in the United States, you want your bike to sit a little higher in the travel and be a bit more supportive off the top instead of supple. The reason for that is because they're typically really smooth courses, except for like one or two spots where there's like a drop. But other than that, it's really smooth. So you don't want it to be soft and plush. You want it to be a bit stiffer. I mean, either way, it sounds like Jacob knew what worked for them and decided to change it at the last minute because they thought they were running, you know, uh, had mm. all their gear with them. And my assumption is that, you know, at hour five of seven of this race, uh, Jacob was like, uh oh, maybe this is why I'm feeling this way in my back is hurting because I made this pressure change. And I just want to urge athletes when you're in this scenario, I know there's neutral mechanic support on courses like this, like take the five mm. minutes to stop and get them to, to change the pressure for you versus spending the next two hours fixating on it and continuing to be miserable <laughs> and losing so much more time because you didn't just stop and change this, you know, it's like the rock in your Good shoe. Point. Yeah. Right. yeah. Four hours. Just stop and get it <laughs> yeah. 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 When I have back pain, it's usually because my handlebars are too low. And if Jacob were to increase five PSI pressure, might they not not be sagging as much? And then thus leaning over more, more pressure on your hands, and thus your hands are also messed up. because uh, it's you know, yeah, that's what could that be it? Yeah. Cause like five PSI front and back, isn't going to have the same effect, right? Nate, like it might make your bike then ride know. like a stink bug. <laughs> and then if that's the case, then there's more pressure on there. Also a hydration pack is like more weight over the back. So mm -hmm. perhaps you would want to put a bit more pressure in the back than the front, but I'm just going through and looking at like the specialized suspension calculator. And I'm adding on an additional, like, for example, all the extra gear you were carrying compared to a normal ride is probably really going to add up to like one and a half to two and a half pounds, like two and a half pounds would be quite a lot compared to a normal ride. Like now you're carrying something else. In addition to that, you're probably already carrying stuff as is. And in that case, the change in suspension, at least for the PSI for my bike, at least and for in this case, also Jacob's bike, it's, it's less than one PSI. It's not changing for me. Um, so it's not like you have to, oh man, I'm carrying a ton of weight and I have to change that. I would probably look at just bigger volume tires that you can run a little less pressure in that will make things a bit softer and then not changing your suspension dramatically, not making it stiffer. But the main thing I feel like on these rides is you're in a race. It's super tense. That course, again, you're always on. It's never like you can just relax. Like at Leadville, for example, you have like these long descents or road sections or something else, and you can kind of stretch and relax your back a bit, move a little bit, even like sit up from your bars. And I don't think there's a single spot on little sugar where you could like sit up because it's single track winding nonstop. So in those situations, it's a foreign environment perhaps than what you're used to. But Nate, I remember you talking about just incorporating deadlifts, I believe, and how much that helped your back. Uh, cause you were struggling with back pain a ton on the, on the road bike, right? A mountain a bike. Ton. Yeah. And I would do a uh, high, high rep 20, 30 rep deadlifts, which, uh, hasn't done a lot, but I, that was huge. And you you make a big point. If you're out of the saddle, like and you're hinging mountain biking, your back is engaged. Like you, your lower back is, is there, I remember just in Leadville going down Columbine and trying to be hinged and could not, <laughs> I would just try to sit up and it was so dangerous going, I don't know, 30 something down a dirt road. Yeah. Ivy, what, what stands out to you? Cause it was cyclocross too. Um, that's like, uh, 
back pain, you hear that a ton from people. And it's usually because they're like putting out huge power going up these super steep climbs and doing that sort of thing, uh, mm-hmm. which very well could be happening for Jacob. And what stands out to me is that Jacob, you know, asks, are there any hand or strengthening, back strengthening exercises you recommend or just the normal do bigger rides and your body will get used to it? I don't think that's the answer for someone like Jacob. You know, it's like just because I do a seven hour XC ride once doesn't mean that I'm prepared and, you know, uh, yeah. physically able to do it. Um, I think that doing what Nate is suggesting and making sure that your core and, uh, that this, it's a more like a frequency in stimuli that you're getting used to versus just doing like one big ride or throwing in peppering in a big ride every once in a while, like doing something like that isn't going to prepare you just like binge studying for a test one time. Isn't going to prepare you for it. You know, like break, breaking it up. And <laughs> oh, <nay. laughs> My degree says different. <laughs> oh, Long term though. It's probably not good for for like retention of knowledge, everything else. Right. Not I mean, that's what you're getting no. at. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My yeah. point is like, I think that um, making sure that, you're physically prepared for that constant on stimuli at, at a shorter duration, more consistently will better prepare you than just being like, I got to just do this once in a seven hour ride. And then, and then I'll know what it feels like. And then my body will be ready. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, strength training, man. That's like the main thing that pops up to me in terms of what sort of strength training. Um, we did a great podcast with dialed health. You can check that one out with Derek Teal. Uh, that was like a full deep dive on all the different things that, and a lot of questions from athletes. And if you haven't listened to that one, go listen to it again with this fresh perspective, Jacob, of like my hands hurt and my back hurt at this race. Cause we had a specific section where we talked all about back pain and what to do with back pain, uh, different exercises that could help with it, the whole thing. So, uh, even like equipment that you can get to help with those exercises. John, for the hands hurting, I think you told me once to like you grip at the, like it's a paper towel or a toilet paper kind of uh, piece of cardboard, because I would guess in a course like this at Bentonville, you could be gripping really hard the whole time. Cause you're just being, you're, it's very dynamic. And could he be over gripping? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and you're probably over gripping too. If you've got weird suspension changes that are putting more weight on the front, if you put five PSI in the rear, that's going to jack your back end up more than it will your front, which probably puts more weight on the front, which then puts more pressure on your hands. So yeah, totally. And in that case too, like with the hand exercises, Derek talks about them, but farmers carries that sort of thing for a cyclist is hugely productive, like grabbing heavy kettlebell kettlebells or dumbbells and walking with them and working so that you should grab something that's heavy enough so that it's hard for you to hold on to And you're having to use a lot of strength. Um, and you walk for a short period of time, you drop them, you turn around and you pick them up and you walk back and you just repeatedly do those sort of things that can help for sure. And that's a great way of doing it. But in the end, like Nate said, if you're gripping too hard, nothing's going to fix it. Like, you know, you're just uh, try squeezing something really hard and holding that for seven hours and 12 minutes, but your race was, it's going to be really difficult. Um, there's also grips like really play into this. I find that most brands ship like firm grips that are smaller in diameter. Uh, some people need bigger diameter grips that are softer. Um, and in some cases it might be the opposite, but experiment with the grips that you have change those around roll your bars forward or backward. Like your bars don't have a fixed position in the stem. They have these bends to the bars intentionally set there so that you can utilize them in different areas that fit your geometry best. So like roll your bars forward. And what that will do is that will be less of your hands tilted back toward you. And instead what it will be is your more of your hands tilted up. And maybe that's more comfortable for you. Like the outside of your hands tilted upward. And you can the really play around levers. with a lot of that stuff. 
And the position your brake levers, if they're rotated too far forward or too far back, like you can hinge at the wrists and put weird undue pressure on like the heel of your hand if they're not in the right position too. And that's worth playing around with. Yeah. And I see most people putting them too low, right, Ivy? Not mm-hmm. too high. It's like BMX stuff from way back in the day. We used to get a bike when we were a kid and the lever was pointing straight down, right? Yep. And <laughs> and it's not like that on a mountain bike. You don't want to run that. <laughs> John, you talk reasons. about farmer's carries too. If you're doing 30 reps of deadlift, uh, the same thing. You get the same, your hands. Don't use wrist straps. Uh, try yeah. to do it with deadlift. And, you know, do an appropriate uh, rep range too. I mean, uh, weight. <laughs> Not too light, yeah. but not too strong. You kind of want to have failure, I think, at that around that twenty to thirty uh, rep mark, and then I would do after warm up, do two sets. You don't really need a three, I think, in this case. Yeah, for sure. The most effective thing too for me for back pain is just making sure that I'm doing strength training routines that work my core in dynamic ways. Um, like, and that's everything from my butt all the way up to my shoulders, right? And if I'm doing that sort of thing, it makes sense that I'm stable on the bike and. I don't have to worry about that stuff quite as much. Well, um, Ivy. Oh, while we are giving Jacob good uh, methods to prepare for a long ride like this, I really do think that this is a case of changing something to your setup the day of the race. And I really do think that Jacob was just like, <laughs> seriously, like gripped and bouncing around. And I think that's probably had a lot to do with why hands and back were hurting. Yeah. It's probably super intense. You had all the lifetime Grand Prix athletes racing this race. You had Tom Pidcock racing this race. I bet the energy was super intense to <laughs> be at that start line. And and for even though us average folks, Jacob, I don't know, maybe you were, you know, uh, set to be up at the front before the flat and stuff. But I know even as me that will not be racing with those people, I still feel the same energy. It still makes me race really hard. Um, and that can be a situation where, yeah, it, it cooks you. So I think the last thing to mention too is if you're just – in the saddle or out of the saddle and you're surging constantly and you're just putting out this huge power to try to stay with a group, especially there where it's so punchy. If you're blowing your pacing plan, it's not just going to make itself manifest in the term of my legs and my lungs are tired. The rest of your body's also going to get tired, particularly if it's a bunch of really hard surges, it's going to tire out and particularly, you know, your back. So, uh, okay. Colin's question. I'm from Belgium and I recently discovered your podcast. I absolutely love it. I'm trying to catch up with all the previous episodes. So I don't know if you've already talked about this topic and Cohen we have, but perhaps not in this light. So we'll cover it again. How do you know what your ideal weight is since a few years now I'm training more and more and putting attention to my nutrition. I've dropped weight from 79 to 73 kilograms and I'm one meter, 83 centimeters. I imagine there is a certain point where further weight loss won't give you any benefits anymore. How do you know when you reach this point? And is this by checking your total fat percentage or are there any other indicators? I've also noticed this in recent weeks, I've increased my carb intake during training a lot. I was only doing 30 grams per hour and now I'm doing 60 to 90. And since doing this, I haven't really dropped more weight, maybe even gained a bit. Uh, Thanks guys. And keep up the good work. Uh, That's from Cohen. Nate, the gaining weight because you're taking in more carbs. He might've been like depleted and now he just like has like more glycogen storage within his muscles, which is also water weight, right? Like kind of like taking creatine in a way. (laughs) Every gram of glycogen is two, also has two grams of water with it. So if you are depleted. I can't remember. Four? Mm, I think it's two, but I don't know. Okay. Yeah. We can do it post. Yeah. (laughs) Figure it it out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that could be the the case for like the recent weight gain, that sort of thing. But, um, Ivy, your first thoughts when you read this one here? I just realized I should do some conversions from yeah, cool. kilograms and to I'm pounds. Gonna and, in, uh, I'm going to jump in and share the thoughts while you do those. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, 
we're looking at 175 pounds. And I, you know, I, I don't want to be too critical of people that are looking for body composition changes that are, you know, to optimize your performance, that's fine. And, um, I think I can be hard on people that do that, uh, pretty frequently because it's kind of dangerous to get into that, which I think might be happening here when you start to fixate so much on how to optimize your body composition for performance that you might be hindering your performance in the long term. And so I think I forget that there are people, um, I don't think this applies to this athlete writing in, but I know there are athletes that do need to or want to drop weight to be healthy and reach a healthy body composition. And that approach is really different. Um, but go ahead, John, mm -hmm. finish your thought. Yeah. Uh, six foot tall athlete and 175 pounds. That's, uh, like a, that's a pretty slim cyclist build. That's a, or I should say even like, uh, perhaps for like a higher performance athlete, that's, that's within what you would expect. Like if you see a pro cyclist that's six foot tall, seeing 175 pounds wouldn't be out of the question. So just judging by that in and of itself, you're probably already on track. And like Ivy said, it's probably super important here to separate the two when you're trying to lose weight for health reasons, like a, a significant amount of weight versus trying to optimize body composition. But man, the more and more I've seen this with myself and then with other athletes, I think that assuming that you are in the path of wanting to optimize your body composition, you don't have a ton of weight to lose for health. You just want to optimize it. The best way to reach optimization is to fuel your work and then do your workouts and then it will become what it is. Um, and that's, that's what your body, your body's good at finding that balance. But if you find yourself in a spot where you're not like a well-controlled diet in the sense that, you know, you aren't looking at what you're taking in, you're taking a lot of stuff that's like high in fat and, um, highly processed, those sort of things, it gets tougher for your body to be able to optimize its body composition. And it comes down to like those choices. But this, Nate, this seems like a, a pretty good weight, just like weight to height ratio, right? Six foot 175. That's not far off of what I'd expect. Yeah. And it depends on body composition too. If, uh, but like you said, if you train a bunch and you're fueling, the body composition will just come and you'll get a natural mm -hmm. point that is probably ideal for you. And I know we look at the pro tour cyclists and think we need to be at like 4% body fat. Um, going back to the glycogen thing too, you are right. It is three to four grams, uh, for every gram of water. And what is interesting about that is if you lose about 250 to 300 grams of glycogen and, uh, weight loss, you lose about one to one and a half kilograms or about two to three and a half pounds of, of just water weight. Like it's just crazy. so, and that's why people, when you start like a, a keto diet, you lose weight really fast because if you only lose 300 grams of glycogen, you're losing almost three pounds or a little over three pounds. Uh, interesting. Very interesting. So that's why you can, you, people start eating carbs. They go, I'm bloated. I can't believe this. Mm -hmm. Um, but actually it proves your performance. And I, I get into this right now cause I, I started Adderall and Adderall makes you not, uh, makes it harder to eat appetite suppressant mm -hmm. and just in like weight training, you know, going back to back days are tough unless I like force myself to eat a lot. And I have the same thing with cycling too. If you're getting really tired from your workouts or your performance is dropping off, there's a recovery issue somewhere and it's either going to be sleep calories and carbs or, um, some kind of stress, and then you'll hit an upper limit. And if you're optimizing sleep and you're getting plenty of sleep, um, and you're not overly stressed, I would try to make sure your calories are there before you say, Hey, this is my natural upper limit. Yeah. And this is Nate, you brought up the interesting point of like, what was it? 260 uh, grams of carbs that would be, uh, yeah, 250, would be lost 300. There. yeah. 
And if you look at that, that's like maintaining 160 watts for two hours. If you're theoretically only burning glycogen, boom, that's gone. (laughs) So like to show like how much weight fluctuates, it's a lot, especially when you're training regularly, depending on when you measure your weight, everything else, you're going to get a really different result. And also if you do a workout, you've drained a ton of water from your body through sweat. And then also through glycogen depletion, like you've lost a lot of that. It's also probably going to change things. If you have one of those scales, that's going to measure your body composition with running like current through your body. Uh, Those like, like the Garmin index, for example, uh, which is a great scale. It'll even change things there. So, um, it's important to like measure consistently if you are going to do it. What I mean by that isn't, you don't have to measure every day. Just make sure you do it under similar circumstances, like in the morning when you wake up or whatever it may be, it's probably going to be the easiest time to do it. Um, I, I, I've performed really well and even like had watt KG PRs at different body fat percentages. And I think that's probably important to point out that it, it doesn't come down to, I perform best when I'm 6% body fat and that's when it works best. But looking at trainer road, I can see my PRs across different timeframes and I can compare them. And looking at that, I've gotten PRs at different times and different durations. I've gotten power PRs at different body fat percentages. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at Strava, when that like rubber meets the road sort of a thing on KOMs, I've also climbed faster being at higher body fat percentages sometimes because it enables me to have more power. It can't be overestimated how important that is. So yeah. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking, Oh, when we're talking about your optimal body composition, that's, I think what you're referring to, John, is it doesn't mean optimal isn't as skinny as you can be pound for pound. It's, Mm -hmm. it's the composition in which you can perform best and go faster. And that's why my approach now is I don't look at the scale. If I am healthy from a medical perspective and nutritionally meeting all my needs to fuel performance and training beyond that, I can't like know what the scale says beyond that. You know, if I'm just checking the boxes and making sure I'm fueling my workouts, like that's it. Go ahead, Nate. So we, we have the Apple to help data stuff and we have a project to pull in like scale data and we'll get in the body set, body fat percentage. It'd be really cool to correlate uh, body fat percentage and watt kg and see what the range are like a distribution of people at different uh, watt kg for the people that do have that data because i bet you'll be surprised that you might think that everyone's at this really low level of body fat <laughs> yeah. but i bet mm-hmm. you it's a pretty big range and it's not as low as you think but it is probably not going to be you know the, the 4.5 watts per kilo probably not a 30 percent body fat or 25 um sure. it's you know probably going to under 20, I would guess. I don't think it's going to be as grouped tightly. And I think there'll probably be a uh, cutoff point where it's just kind of, um, it's going to be more in genetics, other stuff. But that'd be really cool to show uh, mm-hmm. a correlation. And, you know, correlation is not causation, too. Uh, it just might be that the people who, you might have a genetic ability um, to have less body fat than other people. And that could be the reason why you have the Watt KG, not rather than somebody's specifically dieting down to a certain level. Mm-hmm. You know, even you know those people, Keegan's, I mean, Keegan is like wrapped skin on muscle and <laughs> yeah, he yeah. eats more than anyone. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen him, heard of him dieting, uh, he no. would, but he also does crazy volume. But I, I think yeah. that he has also very special genetics and I would not compare ourselves to the best in the world with these genetics where I think Keegan probably has a, was ripped since he was like 12. I'm guessing. And <laughs> probably. Yeah. yeah, no, seriously, yeah, probably, like the whole, yeah. his whole life, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Veins in his quads kind of thing. And most of us will never, ever. There. There's great examples of athletes that don't look like that. Look at Wout Van Aert. Wout does not look like he is some sliced down, wrapped in saran wrap dude um, and performs extremely well. And on yep. the women's side, you have Annemiek Van Vluten and then you have Demi Vollering and they look like they're totally different athletes too. So like it's, um, 
yeah, there, there's a range. That would be really cool, Nate. I think Two. it takes so much work to get to like whatever the high performance is that it would be so silly for us to think that like our body wouldn't know the best way to get there in terms of body composition and to think that we, we'd somehow need to intervene. Like your, your body, it has to go through so much to get to 4.5 Watts per kilogram or whatever it might be. And to do that, it's like, yeah, man, like, don't worry. I'm changing you all the way along. Like <laughs> I'm adjusting. So then we're ideal for this sort of workout or with this sort of workload. You don't have to intervene and starve me. You don't have to intervene and do X, Y, and Z, you know? It's all that consistency and not getting sick and not getting injured. Um, well, two, it's, it's hard right now. Yeah. Oh, when you're in Belgium, <laughs> I mean, that's going to be flat races, right? Like that's going to be, uh, probably a little extra weight, a little extra, uh, power mm -hmm. is going to be a good thing. You're, you're not living in the Alps or something like that. So I would just keep doing what you're doing and not worry about those two, those little small changes in, in, uh, body weight, you know, like adjusting the carbs that can, that's messed me up before. Uh, John, you know, famously ate a salad on stage two of a race because he wanted to <laughs> wanted to go <laughs> faster the next day. <laughs> so he ate it's a salad a for dinner. Choice. <laughs> um, don't even. I mean, I wouldn't even look at those day to day things, especially if you think it's yeah. impacting your uh, what you're going to be doing or your performance. I do like to just track the data, but if not seeing the results and seeing it way later about what huge trends are, uh, is probably a better way to do it. Mm -hmm. I agree, Nate. I see Cohen as being an athlete that is excited about training and all of a sudden excited about getting faster and like saw this thing happen where they drop some weight and wants to kind of keep making gains. And I, I think now the focus should shift away from your weight as a as a raw mm -hmm. number and shift instead to all these other performance indicators that we talk about all the time. Power. Power's king. Uh, Dan's question says, dear Trent road coaches, uh, firstly, thank you. Brilliant and informative podcast. I get so much out of it. And so many riders and runners that I speak to do as well. Awesome. Uh, the runners, Nate, it's always surprising how many run activities we have, right? Like <laughs> it's mind blowing. So, so. I, like so much that I like, I want the data to be checked. We're running like another check on it. It seems like yeah. it's too much. Like <laughs> all y'all are closet runners, maybe, right? Like no one wants to reveal it. All these cyclists, a bunch they, of nerds. Run, so. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you've kept me company in many long journeys, and always get me psyched for more training. So keep up the good work. Anyway, my question is about creatine and cramps. I've heard and keep hearing the benefits of creatine, and I've tried using it on three occasions. Once originally, where I took ten grams a day for a week, and then reduced it to five grams, and then twice where I took three grams a day. Each time I have ended up with debilitating cramps in my calf muscles. The first time it was after about a month. The second time was around three weeks. And this latest time was literally day two of taking it. The cramps were always in the night and woke me up with the pain, which then lasted for a week to two weeks. I hope that the cramp didn't last for two weeks to two weeks or just recurred. Uh, it'd be terrible. And then they mentioned that, yeah, kept him up and he says, felt like I properly damaged my muscles. I always try to keep hydrated and I've tried different brands of creatine. What am I doing wrong? Uh, Nate, you have taken creatine while training for cycling. I haven't. And I feel like I actually should. Um, the research is like solid on it. Um, it's something that I feel like I should do, but did you experience this? Like any correlation no, here? And creatine has like, uh, benefits for cognitive function and also maybe some, uh, this is a maybe, but help for people with concussions, which I think we both had concussions. And that to me is well worth any extra water weight. Cause you will hold extra water. Um, also, if you're doing a hot race, holding a little bit of extra water is not a bad idea. Uh, you sweat it out. Like I, I, 
I know it's not probably the best for performance, but overall for everything, I do think it is a, a good thing. And yeah, I, I would try it, John. But I've never experienced, I mean, I've experienced cramps, but they didn't coincide, especially when you're not exercising. Um, that is the interesting part. Yeah. Ivy, uh, do you, have you taken creatine? <laughs> you don't want to know what my experience with creatine is? When I <laughs> played college volleyball, my mom dropped me off to my college apartment uh, and we went to Costco and she got me a big jar of creatine and I use it for, you know, however month and a half that it lasted and then she was gone and i couldn't go to costco and i stopped using it forever so that's my experience with <laughs> routine nice i cannot contribute <laughs> <laughs> this one and antonio and colleagues in 2021 they did a review um a narrative review where they said common questions and misconceptions about creatine supplementation what does the scientific evidence really show And this is a quote from it. It says, in the early 2000s with limited data and based primarily on speculation, the American College of Sports Medicine recommended that individuals controlling their weight and exercising intensely or in hot environments should avoid the use of creatine supplementation. Why? The assumption here is that creatine shifts fluid distribution in the body to the cells and thusly could hinder thermoregulation. But here's the catch. Um, Any studies done on this haven't been properly controlled, according to Antonio and colleagues. They basically said like it was observational at best. Um, they didn't control things like creatine dosage, fluid intake, ambient conditions, activity levels, nutrition intake, or prior conditioning. So all of this assumption that like creatine could cause cramps, it was all based on observational correlations of uncontrolled studies. And it wasn't actually measuring cramps in a well-controlled environment that were coming from creatine. As a result, um, and in fact, there's studies proving the opposite. Greenwood and colleagues, they had college football players. They self-selected either creatine supplemented sports drinks or non-creatine sports drinks throughout the season. This is a bit more controlled because you had athletes following the same regimen and they were able to control this and observe this. And creatine users actually had significantly less cramping, heat illnesses, and dehydration, muscle tightness, muscle strains, and total injuries <laughs> compared to non-users. I thought I messed it up uh, there because I was like, you should use it in hot. And then it's like in the early 2000s. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they actually had less. Now you, they self-selected. So you could say like super, like maybe more fit people wanted to take creatine because maybe they were in this habit. Right. And maybe that was the cause. So that's also a bit weak there. Um, but creatine was shown to decrease muscle cramping also in other studies with uh, other studies with non-athletic subjects, particularly they were looking at people in senior care facilities and they were struggling with cramps. It's more common as, as age goes on, like those nighttime cramps. And they actually tried creatine supplementation, which based on the prior evidence is pretty torturous for them to consider doing that, but they tried it and they actually found that it reduced. I don't know what else they were giving them because once again, this wasn't tightly controlled or anything, but that's worth pointing out. Antonio and colleagues, they say, in summary, experimental and clinical research does not validate the notion that creatine supplementation causes dehydration and muscle cramping. In other words, we have some studies that prove that it doesn't. We only have observational correlations that weren't tightly controlled that assumed that it might. So based on that, there isn't any evidence actually showing that creatine does indeed cause cramps. What could cause the cramps though? any number of different things. You take creatine, maybe you're training extra hard. Maybe you are not nourishing yourself in one way or another because you feel like you're taking in that maybe recovery shake and that recovery shake has creatine in it, but maybe you're skipping a meal that you would typically have because you're having that recovery shake. I don't know. There's a lot of different things that could come into this, but at least in terms of the scientific research, it doesn't seem like it's caused it um, at all. And it's honestly, Nate, to your point for training, this seems like a great way to be able to get a boost from training 
Creatine isn't an expensive supplement compared to something like ketones. Uh, it's something that's widely available too. Like you can get creatine at Walmart in the United States, like anywhere, you know? So it's, it's something that's widely available and easy to use. And if you're using it all throughout your training, let's say that you go off of it when you get to your goal race. So then you aren't, you know, you maybe you'll drop some weight as a result of that going into the race. seems like a great idea and kind of almost like a defense mechanism to keep more water on board because without water, that's where we find ourselves getting into trouble with training and recovery. I mean, it's the weight gain. That's the one. That's the one negative that people have. I think it is the most studied supplement in the world. It's basically safe. And WADA approved yeah. for sure. It is mm-hmm. correct. You still want to look, make sure that like, cause you can get into some fringe creatine that's like blended in with pre-workout or something else like that. Don't do that. Don't take those. Um, <laughs> cause that's pre-workout stuff is not tightly controlled at all. So you might find yourself with amphetamines and everything else in your blood and popping on a positive test or something. So and there's different forms of creatine and creatine monohydrate is the one that's the most studied and safe and effective. Yeah. I've seen the other ones aren't, but that's, the most studied. Also, I think we've talked about this with protein drinks. Like if you have protein or you have creatine, it's typically taken in in a shake. Whereas you otherwise would maybe skip fueling yourself right after your workouts, just knowing that you have to take in a shake <clears throat> to take in your creatine might also force you to take in more nutrients right after training, which is a beneficial thing to being able to help yourself recover better. Creatine though does not have to be taken after training. You can take it any time during the day and you don't need to do a loading phase. It'll just get you to a full like amount of stores, uh, more quickly. I personally do more than which is needed because, uh, I don't have any gastrointestinal issues and the rest just leaves. Um, but yeah, a, a three to five grams per day is probably a good dose. For yeah. Most people. Yeah. Yeah. That 10 was, is pretty intense there. So um, cool. All right. Let's end this one on some hot takes. If you are listening to this podcast right now and you have not yet rated it, please do that. Go to Spotify, rate it. Uh, I also think that we're going to start having video on Spotify. So that could be really cool. So you can see that on there. What? Um, so stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exciting stuff. Uh, we'll talk about it more afterward. Um, but just the same. So rate the podcast cause that's huge and it, it happens every week. So like the more ratings we get that week, the more likely our podcast will show up in search results that week. Wow. So it's not just like they got a lot of ratings once and that that's it. Yes, that does help. But as we get ratings all along the way, that's what helps us most. So please do that. Helps more people find the podcast. More people sign up for Trainer Road. We can build more cool features like the ones that uh, we were talking about earlier. Ivy, it's time for hot takes. Okay. Oh, I get to read them? Because this is my thing. Yeah, it's your thing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Hot take. Nate needs to be on the podcast more often again, and he needs to wear those glasses all the time. Nate, do you have your glasses nearby? No, they're in the car. But I will. Yeah, I am available for the podcast every (laughs) Wednesday, whatever. Yeah, we're on Wednesday. Um, And I wore those. I had those glasses on going to my son's soccer practice, and he asked me to take them off. Oh, oh no! <laughs> was it too intimidating? What? Re- Reno's not ready. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, understood. Yeah, in like uh, yeah, five or ten years, it'll be cool in Reno, and then you know, yeah. <laughs> Can I dispel a little bit? Like that the reason that Nate hasn't been on the podcast as much is because Nate was more focused on the product and on building those sort of things, and not being on the podcast and um, just time allocation. So uh, that, that's kept- where it's been. Things kept, I got like pink eye and then I had like a surgery on the ones that I was going to be on. Uh, yeah. 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 So the, like things happened, but yeah, I'm, I'm down to be on. We're, yeah. We're exactly. glad you're here. If you go to the forum, there's conspiracy theories, uh, you know, abound oh about the fact that like gosh. it hasn't been on for this many weeks and connect red dots of string and all that stuff. So, yeah. AI has taken <laughs> over his body and <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. 
uh, hot take. As competitive cyclists, we lose out on the lifestyle cycling culture. We can't do both. What do you think, John? Mm. What do you consider to be lifestyle cycling culture? When you hear that, what do you think of? Like bike packing or like, you know, wearing t-shirts and Lycra on my bike or something. I don't know. Like, uh, <laughs> that's what I'm wondering. Like, I mean. Stopping no, for I coffee th- in the middle of a ride, like at pastries for an hour. Sure. I think yeah. that's possible yeah. though. People still do that. Yeah. Um, riding. I think about uh, socialization on rides, riding, however long or wherever you want to, not sticking to the structure of training. And at first when I read this hot take, I was like, oh, no, oh you can do both. Like you can mm-hmm. do these things outside of your structured training. But then when I think about, you know, a lot of the really competitive cyclists that I know, when I ask them to go on rides or um, like, hey, there's this group ride thing that we're doing or like, hey, I want to ride to this spot because there's a really good brewery there and we can get a good beer there. You know, it's always a no. Like it's always like, got to do this today. Got to do these, you know, um, personally and- attacked. Yeah. 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 Well, so yeah, I guess the more I thought about it, maybe there isn't room for both. If you're truly trying to be a competitive cyclist, you just got to make room for what makes you happy on the bike Mm -hmm. and like what makes you go for some people it's training and that's like what they want and it can change and ebb and flow. Like Mm -hmm. there are times of the year where I just want to go ride with my son or like my dad got an e-bike and my dad like wants to ride with me now and it's fun, right. To go like do a ride with my dad. Um, that's really cool. And then there are other times of the year where I'm just like, nope, I want to train. And that's like what I want. So I don't think that they need to exist in isolation. And honestly, if you feel like you're being torn away from the enjoyment part of cycling, because you're training too much, then drop to a lower volume plan. So then you can still have those things in your life on the bike. You know, you can have both. I think you just, you also don't have to have both. It's the writing for enjoyment versus purpose. Like what's your primary motivator? But a lot of times purpose is the enjoyment if you have a big goal. And that's when then I would say, oh, I'm not going to stop for this hour coffee thing because I want to get in this structured like five hour ride so that I can perform well at this event that I've been training for for eight months mm-hmm. yeah. and I get coffee some other time with you. Like, yeah, uh, so yeah. that's how you can. Yeah, so. I agree. And mm-hmm. and like John said, it it can uh, like it can it can change and there's room for both and i think it's okay as long as your expectations for your results as a competitor are realistic based upon what you make space for like you can mm-hmm. do in, enjoyment rides and have lifestyle cycling culture if you want to along with being a competitive cyclist if you don't beat yourself up when your results aren't like perfect and you you know you can't point to this thing that you chose because it's fun and then be like um disappointed that you're not a better competitor because of those things you know you have to very like be very deliberate in where they all fit together before and during the approach yep well said okay uh hot take quit racing is more dangerous now than it used to be yikes uh, no, I think our awareness of it is just higher. More people with GoPros. Yeah, racing, better documentation. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and maybe like a situation where athletes with GoPros are perhaps emboldened to like do a courageous move or something because it's going to show up on social media. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I personally haven't seen any increase in... Granted, I, I actually didn't even race a crit this year, which is crazy. First time I don't even know how many huh. years I didn't race a crit. But um, in my experience, I haven't seen an increase in that. Other, But if I watch social media, for sure, it seems like it. <laughs> yeah, because those and are the, the videos that get the, the ones that get exactly. <laughs> yeah. Those are the videos that get the views. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, the only counter argument I have is that because there are so fewer crits, may um like I feel like versus ten years ago, the mm. calendar is so much smaller. I do feel like um maybe mm. those crit racers feel more pressure to get a result in those fewer opportunities and so are maybe willing to take more risks as a result, you know? Could be Yeah, fair point. Yeah. Um, Tulsa's terrifying, but yeah. i don't want to do that again (laughs) yeah so okay jonathan this is a good one for you hot take i can succeed both in xeo and enduro yeah it's like honestly i think one of the best pairings that you could have i think it's uh because if you train for xeo just train for xeo and then if you have good technical skill or if you work on your technical skill you'll smash enduro too Mm -hmm. like uh this is going to come off maybe this is a hot take in and of itself but the average enduro racer is like further away from peak performance than the average cross country racer. Like when you go to an enduro field, you have a lot of people that are filling out lower mm-hmm. and like further away from the leader. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you go to an XCO race, you have everybody's a bit closer to that. Like the average performance level is higher. So mm-hmm. if you go into enduro and many times it is like fitness is the limiter with a lot of enduros. Yeah. You'll crush it. So yeah, it's like perfect pairing. I wish I could race more enduro, but it's like parallel universe me wishes that because I don't want to deal with the risk, but yeah. man, it's so much fun. Like, uh, ugh, yeah, I get a rush out of it, but I don't want to hurt myself. So Nate, would you ever do an enduro? <laughs> yeah, I, it, there just need to be one that is not insane because it was very <laughs> it was close to me. Oh my God. I'm <laughs> yeah. so excited. Not anymore. I, mean, yeah, I would have oh, no. before. Well, um, <laughs> but I was having fun at North Star going through there and the yeah. SB150 was like, it really made things feel comfortable and like a lot safer. Uh, but the the one that they had in North Star, like the Vietnam, it was the EWS it was insane. Race, yeah. <laughs> I, I could not walk down. It was something I could walk down and want to do. But yeah, it was, I had fun. Okay. Yeah. It's it's a cool format, man. You get to chill with your friends and then go really hard on the segment and then catch up with your friends and cruise mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. It's like how we all want to ride bikes. It's cool. Yeah. All right. It's lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, lifestyle cycling. Like, <laughs> <Yeah. competitive. laughs> <That's the answer. laughs> yeah. All right. Hot take, you don't need disc brakes in Florida at all. And I think the <laughs> hot take is that you don't need disc brakes for areas with mostly flat terrain. Um I don't agree with this because there have been moments <laughs> where, uh, you know, in a flat terrain setting, having a close call with like a car or like a car door or pedestrian where I've been so, so grateful that my brakes, disc brakes work the way that they are intended to like really quickly and, oh, you yeah. know, powerfully. Yeah. It rains in Florida. Yeah. Like, like that's like, <laughs> and I don't think the drivers are <laughs> super nice in Florida that are yeah. going to give you that extra room. Mm. Yeah. The, the rain, that's a huge thing. Performance goes for those who know when it rains performance on rim brakes, especially carbon rims can go way, way down to where it is. John's eyes are open. It is scary. <sighs> like you push I'm on it and you don't stop. You don't stop. You don't stop. Like my TT bike is rim brakes and all the brakes are noisemakers. I pull the levers and they make noise, but they, don't stop. It's just like, <laughs> it's like a party. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Let go well, of rim brakes, it, everybody. It's ridiculous. I, like, I just remembered, maybe it's going to be on the podcast. I had a dream last night that there was, I was going down a very steep hill cycling. It was like in a race and an ambulance was going down. Oh. And I was like, oh, someone tried to keep up with John. And then there was everybody, <laughs> oh there was somebody with, with rim brakes on. And they were riding the rim brakes and their wheel was on fire. Oh, and then there were like gosh. hundreds of people walking their bike down the course. 
Um, this podcast like, is a is a metaphor. Oh my you should God. talk to your therapist about this, Nate. I apologize for forcing you into something. <laughs> Dude, this is this is Nate's weight mare. The way that waiters, yeah. people at wait tables have dreams about it 10, 15 yeah. years later, be like, oh my God, the restaurant's full. No one has anything. I have 40 tables. <laughs> this is Nate's version of that, is he's gonna have a horrible bike nightmares one- for 20 years. <laughs> Oh yeah. The one I still have like 10 years after triathlon is that I would come to T2 where I go to my bike and my bike either isn't set up or the tires are flat oh. <laughs> and I'm doing great and I can't find a pump and the tires are flat oh. and my bike's in my bike bag or something like that or in the car yeah. and I just forgot. Oh man. It's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rim brakes. No one should sell a bike with rim brakes in no. 2023. Let's Agreed. get rid of them. Okay. It's dangerous. Illegal. <laughs> yeah, so I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm usually not cool with that stuff. Yes, please. Let's oh, make man. it illegal. All right. This one's cool. Hot take beef jerky and fruit leather is the best <laughs> ride food. Oh. Do you roll them up together? Oh my gosh. That <laughs> sounds... cinnamon, cinnamon roll? <laughs> no. Half beef, half if, I mean, if you like stopping uh, along the side of the road in every gas station, sure. Like this will to, to have to go to bathroom. This sounds terrible. Like a gut bomb. A bunch of... Yeah. Protein to slow it down, fat too, and then like you I, know, fruit leather, a bunch of fiber. Like this uh, sounds the, terrible. The same athlete that su- submitted this brought up that um, there is some research. Uh, I think it was Stacy Simmons specifically that brought up that women maybe need protein during rides, and you yeah. know the re- the research that I saw about this, like I yeah looked into it very very briefly, but digesting solid foods, specifically protein-rich ones, um, can divert blood flow away from the muscles and to the digestive system, which we don't want, right? The whole focus of eating during exercise should be to fuel your working muscles. And so to divert energy away from it into digestion is is bad. So maybe that protein thing can apply if it's not solid food. But when we're looking at solid food, um, specifically jerky, you know, a yeah. big piece of jerky is 80 calories and just has two grams of carbs. So you're really like, if you were to do this, it would be for protein and because you want savory food mm-hmm. if good flavor balance i yeah, guess like, yeah I if you can have see that, some but everything else bad. beef jerky at the end of your ride or near the end like i get it i am so sick if i have to eat one more piece of candy on a bike ride like i'll end it all i can't like i just really need more savory <laughs> ride food options so i get it in that regard beef jerky is the best ride food but from a performance <laughs> oh. perspective oh. <laughs> maybe oh. not yeah uh, just the like the dryness of it, like trying to chew it. I know. And, like, tiring of chewing and like swallow it while you're cycling. Okay, horrible. wait. Have yeah, you had those yeah. um, uh, epic meat bars? It's like spicy sriracha chicken. I see them everywhere. Oh my yeah, gosh, they're so good. Them I love them. It's they're so good. They're not they're not super dry. This is not a sponsor plug. They do not sponsor me. Yeah. I love them, <laughs> and I get them for like travel days too. They're call, they're not dry. Call they're me awesome. space food. Call me space food guy, whatever. I'm okay with it. But like, take, B- take, BC- take BCAAs if you need to, and you really want to take, uh, the research isn't conclusive on that really helping, uh, like prolong your ability to perform or anything else like that. Just taking a lot of your protein outside of your ride. But if you really need mm-hmm. to, BCAAs, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, that sounds terrible. So yeah. if you need something salty, I don't know, grab a small bag of chips or something at the store, but that's got a lot of fat. That's going to slow down digestion too. So I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Just eat candy. No you got to deal with Space it. Just food. eat candy. You just got to just deal with it. <laughs> That's yeah. Right. yeah. All right. Hot take. Embryo cream does more pain than good for cycle cross. Um, or we could just apply this to any cold discipline. Uh, did you guys like Embryo? 
Do you like improv? Nate, did you like it when you were racing? Yeah, I didn't really feel a ton of it though, but mm. I liked it. I've used really hot Embro before and it was like screaming in the shower, the pain. Yeah. Uh, that was the first time I used it. I didn't know that once you actually put hot water on, like, I don't know if the capsaicin was reactivated, but oh my <laughs> gosh, the pain was severe. Like I felt like I was literally standing in fire. Uh, so that's Should we, something to keep in mind. Yeah. yeah. Should we say what Embro cream is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not that common. Yeah. yeah. yeah Embrocation. Embrocation is a, it's a chemical irritant. Um, that is that you're it's meant to put on your skin for uh for cold weather specifically and the intent of it is to cause your blood to um when your blood wants to retreat back into your core when it's really cold um to protect your vital organs and keep them warm Embrocation redirects blood back into your lower extremities like your legs or arms or i know some people that put it on top of their hands like on top of their hands for Hmm. really cold weather um so it's Hmm. stimulating the blood vessels uh, in this, in the scanner on the extremities where you put embrocation. So it's usually like Vaseline or something effectively like that same consistency or something thicker than Vaseline. Um, right. Is what, is what it's like when you put it on. Yeah. And feels like, but let's be real. The main reason we all use embros cause it makes our legs look super shiny and buff. That's like, <laughs> that's why embros really used in a race. And I've had embro on, I felt really hot before, but I've never felt like I was cold. Now I'm warm because of embro. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I've found it to help with is like in rain it's like another barrier yeah. of like uh, from the water soaking your skin, I feel like. Um, so you don't feel like the cold when your legs get wet as much when you have a layer of oily Vaseline style stuff on your legs, you know? Totally. I agree. Yeah. All right. Uh, last oh, hot take. It hurts so bad in the hot shower. <laughs> I wonder. So I have, bad. I've had that experience like There's mildly, but like, oh, does it have to do like, did you shave your legs like the morning of the race and then put yeah, it on? Maybe and I then, did. You know? Yeah. Um, that could be it. Yeah, it was mad. But when I put it on, it didn't burn. Um, it was like, you know, it tingled and it was hot, you know, like mm-hmm. it normally is supposed to be. It was like the hottest mad alchemy stuff, I think, on accident. Um, oh, and then, yikes. yeah. And then once I got into the shower, reactivated. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was bad. So, uh, really funny about that brand. It's super cute. Their Embro jars and their chamois cream jars look the same. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah, it's no bad. Way. I didn't bad, know that. Bad design, and then I knew man. that. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Yeah, yikes. Yeah. It does cause more pain than Yes. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, last hot take. Tires without ramped knobs are slow and should not be used for anything besides downhill. Jonathan, what do you think? This one's all you. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Can you describe a ramped like putting- knob on a tire? Yeah, it's putting like Schwalbe on blast, I think, in particular, because they have like knobs that are just squares um, mm-hmm. instead of the front or the leading edge. In other words, like the the edge of the knob that will make contact with the ground. Mm-hmm. On a lot of tires, you'll see that they, instead of being square, they have like a ramped and angled surface. Instead of being a right angle, it'll right. have like an angled area. And the intent there is that it helps with rolling resistance, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a brand like Schwalbe runs those in many cases, not all cases, but a lot of their tires don't have ramp knobs. And then they say, well, we use a more supple casing and softer rubber. So as a result, like it, it balances out or something like that. But, hmm. um, I tend to agree with this one. I don't, I think it's kind of silly. Like I think every, especially cross country or normal mountain biking or cyclocross, everything should be ramped big time. So it don't, the only thing that hurts is like climbing traction. But if you're slower, or I should say, if you're running bigger tires then you can probably run lower pressure and you're getting great traction anyway and then better rolling resistance with it so wait was that ramped knobs hurt climbing traction uh 
yeah so if they're ramped knobs then you it's harder to like bite into the ground mm. that's why you would want a non-ramped knob is because it can bite into the ground on that leading edge and help a little bit so mm-hmm. wouldn't it hurt breaking too uh it could let me think but not as much and that's why the back side of them are not ramped and that's why they're more of a right angle so that way, because the backside of the knob becomes more activated when you're braking a bit more and mm-hmm. like the top of the knob, whereas the leading edge is the main thing that's concerning when you're accelerating. So it seems like it would still be the front. I might have it backwards. Yeah. Cause you're pushing, you're pushing into the, the ground in front. Was that a fidget mm-hmm. spinner? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's pretty that's sweet. Great. That's I, I interrupt less if I fidget spin. It's got to be it's got to be the middle and the back too. That's got to be more in play when you break, I would think. So, engineers or internet engineers, let us know down in the comments below. Um you don't have to tell us if you're an internet engineer. So, just tell <laughs> us uh, down below and <laughs> uh, if ramp knobs matter when braking. Um but yeah, I I kind of agree with that. I don't know. I've never ridden a tire without ramp knobs and been like, "Wow, my life is so much grippier." <laughs> Um, but I have noticed that they're like, whoa, I feel like I'm pedaling a tank tread. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've never noticed the difference either way. You're a Schwalbe <laughs> guy though. You always have been, you know, so maybe this just comes down to a brand bias. Max assessment, mm-hmm. only tire you need. <clears throat> <laughs> no, don't listen to him. <laughs> Is that it, Ivy? We're all done. Yeah, I think that we're done with hot takes. Great. Thanks everybody for listening. Submit your questions at trainerroadcom slash podcast. Nate, good to have you back on the podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode, everybody, and go to trainerroad.com. If you're listening to this right now to go check out some new features, pretty exciting stuff. Head over to the trainer road forum and you can see a summary of what's new. You can check that out. Uh, It'll be pinned to the top of the forum. So when you go there, it'll be easy to find. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.